Father, we do just come before you and thank you so much for this day that you've given us, the day that we have to come together and uh, praise your name and sing your praises and declare your excellencies. And Lord, I pray that you prepare our hearts to hear your word, that we would be receptive and that we would allow you by your spirit to work in us that which is pleasing. Pray you would bless your word as it goes out. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we go through life, uh, there are times in which we are presented with circumstances and situations before us. Some are important, some are not that important. Now, some of these decisions that are put before us, the impact of those decisions will have uh, consequences for our entire life. Things that come upon us that we uh, must decide when it has come upon us. And there are some things that come upon us that will affect our eternity. The reality is every human being is given an opportunity to... Uh, respond to the love of God that has been manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. So what will we do with Jesus? What will we do? Well, today we're going to see the presentation of baby Jesus, and we're going to see how we should respond. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 35, but we'll back up a little bit, and we will uh, read through 21 up through the end of our passage. Now, as we're in the Gospel of Luke today, uh, Luke is uh, an inspired account, uh, which he says in chapter 1 is based on investigating everything carefully and writing it in consecutive order. The Gospel of Luke is about the Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the first chapter, uh, Luke presents the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, who will prepare the way. He'll prepare the way concerning the Savior, Jesus Christ. And within that, within this first chapter, intertwined within the presentation of John the Baptist, Luke also chronicles the account of the angel bringing forth the announcement, angel Gabriel, the announcement of the birth of Christ, which would come to Mary, a virgin who would conceive. And it's from this announcement we have Mary's uh, greeting of Elizabeth in which she responds with her soul exalting the Lord and rejoicing in God, her Savior. That in chapter 2 we have the only detailed biblical account of the birth of Jesus. And we have the angel bringing good news to the shepherds. The Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. And we have the response of the heavenly host praising God and giving glory to the highest. And then the manger, we see the shepherds go to the manger and they find it exactly as they were told. And they make known the statement that was made known to them, to Mary and Joseph. And Mary treasured these things in her heart. She treasured these things in her heart. And so the shepherds then left glorifying and praising God. And that brings us to where we are in our passage today, in which, as I mentioned, we're going to see the presentation of baby Jesus. Luke chapter 1, and let's look at uh, verse 21. Verse 21. And when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. 
the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what had been said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out uh, for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will even pierce your own, even your own soul, to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So then, I just want to share and walk through the immediate context which we just read to get to the point where then Jesus is presented here. In verse 21, we see that Jesus was given the name that both Mary and Joseph were told to name him. And then Jesus was circumcised according to the law. Uh, verse 21, and when eight days were, comp- were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, circumcision at this time may be contrary to what we think uh, in terms of when it was done or how it was done. It was usually done in the home, not in the temple. And so it's on the eighth day that they would name the child, as we see, uh, they were told to name. And we see this naming even of John the Baptist in chapter 1. It's on the eighth day they'd be named. And that's exactly what Jesus' parents did in obedience. And then the child would be circumcised. So they're not in Jerusalem yet, they're in their home at this point. They're actually home. And so it's at this point now, in obedience, Jesus' parents, uh, in obedience to the law, they go to Jerusalem to present him before the Lord. But they couldn't do that until the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed. Look at verse 22. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, in the law, in Leviticus 12, that required a ceremonial purification of the mother. And that was after the birth of a child and then afterwards. And then there was an offering that was to be given. And in this ceremonial purification of the male child, there would be, uh, the mother would be ceremonially unclean for seven days, and then she wouldn't be able to enter the temple for another 33 days. Now there was a little longer, as we see, for, for female children. Leviticus 12. 
So then, at this point, Jesus is not eight days old. He is at least 40 days old when they bring him to Jerusalem. So he's brought to the temple to be presented. Verse uh, 22. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, and and as we see uh, in the law of the Lord, he says here, in the law of the Lord, as it is written, uh, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So here we have something else that's being said. Every firstborn male that is uh, born should be called holy to the Lord. Indeed, in Exodus chapter 13 and Numbers 18, we see that the firstborn was to be called holy unto the Lord. They were to be set apart. And they were to be presented to the Lord in a sense. And there was a price paid and they were redeemed in a sense, in terms of an offering. Numbers 18, 15 to 17. And this was a reminder of what God had done for the Israelites, that he had redeemed the firstborn of Israel from the plagues with the blood over the doorposts. It was a reminder that he had redeemed them. Where the Passover lamb was slain and the blood was put over the doorposts, a picture pointing to Christ ultimately. So Mary and Joseph bring uh, Jesus, bring Jesus, uh, at about 40 days old to the temple to be presented to the Lord. And notice they also offered the appropriate sacrifice. We see here, and to offer, verse 24, sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And on a side note, there were varying degrees of sacrifices you could give for these things based on your wealth. And obviously they were not very wealthy. Mary and Joseph were not wealthy. So we see that they brought this uh, sacrifice. And so Mary and Joseph are being obedient to the word of God, and they brought Jesus to the temple about six weeks old. And, and look at, uh, at verse 27. This says, They came at the end of it. The parents brought in the child to carry out for him the custom of the law. They're being obedient. And then verse 27. And even looked at it, verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. So here we see that they are being obedient. They are being obedient to the word of God. And they're presenting the Lord Jesus according to the law. And while this happens, something else happens that amazes them. Notice in verse 25... He says, uh, Luke says, and behold, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Take a look, and behold, take a look. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And then look at, he's described. He's described by Luke, inspired by the Spirit. This is God's description of him. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon him. So first of all, notice the text says he was righteous and devout. Well, we know that the Old Testament makes it clear, which is quoted in in Romans chapter 3, that there are none righteous, not even one. So his righteousness is not from himself, it is a righteousness through faith in the seed of Abraham who would come and die for him, who would be in his very presence 
at this time. You see, he was an Old Testament saint. He was righteous. Simeon was righteous through faith in the Christ who would come and die for his sins. He was an Old Testament saint. And notice he was also described as being devout. Devout. Now Luke is fond of this word. He also uses it in the book of Acts, which he wrote also, inspired by the Spirit. And this word devout means literally taking hold of well. Taking hold of well. It speaks of being cautious and careful. And thus, religiously speaking, it speaks of being careful and cautious in your walk with the Lord. Careful and cautious with your walk with the Lord. Well, boy, this is lost in many Christian circles these days. We lost in many churches. Not many devout, careful, and cautious saints. Careful and cautious about their walk. Devout. How about you? Are you devout? Are you careful and cautious? I'm not talking about a a stuffy, phony spiritualism. I'm talking about someone who is careful and cautious concerning their actions, behaviors, and words. Convicted when one fails, confessing and being restored. Devout. So then, this is a good guy. He is righteous and devout. And that's not uh, his opinion of himself or our opinion of him. That is God's statement concerning Simeon. Now notice, we have another description which goes right along with someone who who would be righteous in Christ in the context of trusting in the seed who would come and who is devout. Notice it says, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. He was looking for, you could translate this, continually waiting for. He was waiting for something. The consolation of Israel. Now this is the Lord describing it through Luke concerning this man. So what's the consolation of Israel? The term consolation, paraclesis, speaks of comfort. It speaks of uh, comfort of Israel in the context, as we see in the Old Testament, of redemption. You see, Israel had rejected the Lord, and those who were true saints understood that. They understood that Israel had rejected the Lord. They saw that in the Old Testament scriptures over and over and over again. And they knew that God would bring about his discipline upon the nation. But ultimately, he would come back and bring his comfort when they were saved through the Redeemer who would come. They would be comforting. He's looking for the comfort of Israel. And that would only come through the Redeemer, as we will see, Jesus Christ. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. He understood the Word of God, and he was looking forward to it. You know, hopefully you and uh, and, uh, we are looking forward to Christ's coming. We're waiting eagerly. This world is not our home, and it is terrible. I don't want to live here anymore, but the Lord has work for us. I want the Lord to come. I hope you are righteous and devout in that sense and waiting for Christ. Well, he was waiting for what the Old Testament had said God would do through the Redeemer. Ultimately, Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. He's looking forward to the Lord Jesus saving his people, their sins being forgiven. 
that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for, uh, for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's a prophetic reality concerning what Christ would do for Israel from way back 700 years earlier. And he was looking forward to that which would come through the Redeemer. Would come through the very child that he is seeing in his midst. Simeon is a true believer. He is waiting for what God had promised in his word. You see, if you're following yourself and your own desires, you're always waiting for what you hope will happen in your own life. Whether it's physically, whatever it might be, spiritually, you're hoping for that rather than what God has said. He's hoping for what God said, the consolation of Israel. And ultimately looking forward to the one, as we will see, through whom it would come forth. The one where the way would need to be prepared, where where would be repentance by making things straight and flat, lifting and raising down. That's what that that terminology speaks of what John the Baptist would do, sharing a baptism of repentance, that there needs to repent for for the kingdom is at hand. And we see the king would be at hand. So then, we have this account of Simeon in Luke. And later on, we even have, uh, after Simeon, we have the account of Anna the prophetess, a godly, elderly widow serving in the temple day and night. And the scripture says later on uh, that she spoke of him in the temple. Verse 38, to all who were looking for what? The redemption of Jerusalem. You see, there were those Pharisees and those, uh, those Sadducees and those people who were elevated spiritually within themselves that the Lord Jesus said, woe to you. But there were a remnant of true believers looking for Israel to be saved from their sins. And we see Simeon was looking forward to that. And he understood, as we will see, that that salvation would come through a person, a person, the Messiah. So then, although Israel had an outward semblance of following the Lord, the majority would ultimately reject the Lord, as we would say. But a small remnant were looking forward to the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. And that would come only through the promised Messiah who would bring forgiveness of sins and thus true comfort and true consolation. Now notice the description of him continues back in our passage. It says in the end of verse 25... And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Interesting statement for an Old Testament saint. We know as New Testament saints that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive his spirit, the the comforter, the, the teacher. He teaches us the word of God. We're able to understand then and we believe the truth. But in the Old Testament, the spirit came upon people. And he was upon him because he was a true believer. He had a relationship with the Lord, and God's Spirit was upon him. Holy Spirit was upon him. And later on, we see, actually, you could literally share this in the Greek here, the Holy Spirit had been upon him continually, eventually. He'd been there. This is a true believer. This is a true believer. He was yielded to God, and his Spirit was continually upon him. Then notice, back in verse 26, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
and he came into, in, in the Spirit into the temple. So the Holy Spirit somehow had revealed to Simeon that he wouldn't die before he saw the Lord's Christ. Remember, God spoke in the past in many ways, in many portions, but now he has spoken through his Son. So the Spirit of God had made it clear to him that that was what would happen until he saw the Lord's Christ. You see, the term Christ is the equivalent in Hebrew of the term anointed one or Messiah. It spoke of the Lord's, not someone else's, but the Lord's prophesied redeemer king who would rule, but yet he would need to suffer first for the glories to follow. This is the Lord's Christ. The one who was designated by the Lord to be the Messiah, and it just happened to be the Lord himself. How about that? And so Simeon, verse 27, and he came in the spirit into the temple. The Holy Spirit was upon this Old Testament saint continually, habitually, because he was a true believer. And he was led by the Spirit of God. He was a yielded man, righteous and devout. This is a good guy. This is a good guy. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. Now, why does Luke share so much of this, inspired by the Spirit? Why do we have this much information about the character of Simeon? Why? Well, I think in a moment it will be clear because we need to recognize the Spirit is leading him. And what he shares in a moment is from the Spirit of God speaking through him concerning the very Son of God who was in his midst. So what he will share doesn't come from himself. It comes from the living God. Notice down in verse 29, he was also a submissive servant. Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. The term bondservant, despotus, here, different word, speaks of one who has absolute sovereign control. You have control of my life, Lord. You see, when we come to faith in Jesus, we should have said, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple in our hearts. We didn't say the exact words. We're going to follow Jesus rather than ourselves. We're no longer going to live for ourselves. We're going to live for Christ. This was a bondservant of the Lord. A true servant. You get up in the morning, Lord, I'm your servant. I want to do your will today. But I need your absolute help for everything. I can't do it. You trust the Lord to enable you to do his will, his way throughout the day. And so then we have a wonderful picture of a godly man. Simeon's righteous. He's devout. He's careful in his walk with the Lord. He is spirit-led. He is humble. He is waiting and seeking the fulfillment of the promises concerning Christ in regards to the forgiveness of sins. And he sees the Lord as his absolute sovereign over him. And God has blessed him and said, you're not going to die until you see this Messiah. Tremendous. Well, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? By our new nature, we're like this. It's, it's only when sin gets in the way. When we trust in Christ, even as a babe, we, we're like this because the Spirit of God is in control of our hearts and minds. It's only when sin gets in the way that we stop in a moment, momentarily becoming like this. Would the Lord say that you're continually, habitually like this? It's not perfectly. Well, no one's perfect, but by and large... Would he describe you as spirit-led, yielded, devout, and righteous, careful, humble, seeing your own sinfulness and need of a Savior? Would he describe you that way? Being uh, your sovereign master? 
Would he describe you that way? So we have a good picture of this uh, man. Then notice Simeon's response now to seeing the Lord's Christ. He says here in verse 27, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said. This is his response. He takes the Lord's Christ, the baby, into his arms because Mary and Joseph have brought him in obedience. By the way, when you're obeying God, you're in the right place at the right time. When you're disobeying him, you're not where he wants you to be, okay? Mary and Joseph weren't being disobedient. They were being obedient, and they were at the right place at the right time because God had led them there through their obedience. And so Simeon took him into his arms and blessed God. Notice he responds, blessing God and saying, blessing God and saying, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. Isn't that marvelous? It's marvelous. He took him into his arms and he blessed God. The term blessed God means to speak well of. Speak well of. He says, now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace. Remember, he said he wouldn't die until he uh, saw the Lord's Christ and God was faithful to allow him to see him, to hold him. He says, depart in peace according to thy word. It's what you said, Lord. I believe your word. And he explains why. "For For my eyes have seen thy salvation. Here's the reason he can depart in peace. What a tremendous statement. Or literally, I can depart in peace because my eyes have seen thy salvation. What has he seen? The babe, Jesus. God who had taken on human flesh. You see, God brings salvation only through his son, Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other name. You see, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember what was said in Matthew one twenty nine: You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The Lord is salvation. You see, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. God the Son, the Lord, the Lord of all, took on human flesh. He is the Lord's salvation, the venue in which salvation from sins is brought forth. A lot of people have a Savior named Jesus, but it's not salvation from sins, it's salvation from circumstances. Jesus is a God who saves you from your sins. Saves you from your sins. So this godly Old Testament saint was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Israel, which would come in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. He blessed God. He spoke well of him. Here he is bearing witness that that child is the Lord's salvation. Bearing witness. The reality that God would take on human flesh. 
Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. This is a wonderful Christmas portion of Hebrews. And I find this amazing because in Hebrews chapter 10, we have a conversation between God the Father and God the Son before the Son took on human flesh. We have a conversation within the Godhead. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are privy to hear this conversation through the Word of God. It's quite amazing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. That's Jesus took on human flesh. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, that's taken no pleasure. Hey, I understand clearly as he relays this that those sacrifices you took no pleasure in, that's not the point. They pointed to ultimately the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So he says, Therefore, then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And after saying sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired nor taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, that's God taking on human flesh, by the way, and then dying for our sins. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. There is salvation in no other name. He says, for I've seen thy salvation. It's in Jesus. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.10, For it is this, for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. 1 Timothy 4.10. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. Now, it's salvation from sins, not circumstance. It's salvation from sins. He says, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Tremendous. Tremendous reality. So then, he takes the babe in his arms, and he blessed God. And he said, now, back in our passage, verse 20, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation. And notice he continues, verse 31, Which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the the glory of thy people Israel. Concerning this six-week-old baby named Jesus in his arms, which he has identified as the Lord's Christ and thy salvation, he says, which thou hast prepared and present and in the presence of all the peoples. The term prepared means to be make, to make ready, and it's in a tense that means done deal. God has made ready and prepared His salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has done it in the presence or before the face of all peoples. God has made the revelation concerning Jesus Christ available to everyone if they're willing to look. It is before everyone. And now he says something about it. He says here that it's two possible things. One, a light of revelation of the Gentiles. Two, the glory of thy people Israel. 
Now those things are true, but grammatically you could say it almost this way, that He is a light of revelation to Gentiles and a light of glory to Israel. So we see that Jesus is a light of revelation concerning salvation. What does John say in in John 1? Let's turn to John 1. John 1. Jesus is a light of revelation concerning salvation. If you're willing to acknowledge your sins and turn to Jesus, he'll open your eyes. You'll see. John 1.4 In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was a true light coming into the world which enlightens or enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own. Those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. John eight twelve, And again Jesus therefore spoke, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 12:46 I have come into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. Darkness is uh synonymous for the the darkness of sin and evil. So then Jesus is certainly a light of revelation to everyone, but I believe Simeon here points out something very interesting that many Jews would not have uh liked or had remembered that God had shared earlier in his word. That he, this babe in his hands, would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. That means a non-Jew. A non-Jew. That this little Jewish baby, God who took on human flesh, will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Now now these uh, Jews at this time believed... Uh, that the Messiah was really for them. He didn't, they didn't see and understand the scriptures that revealed that the Messiah would be for everyone, including Gentiles. Now, although this was not understood by the mainstream Jew, God had made it clear that the Messiah would come to the Gentiles. We see this in Isaiah 9.2. I'll read this for you, Isaiah 9.1. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt, but later he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, of Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in dark land, the light will shine on them. That's in Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah made it clear that the Messiah would go to the Gentiles. He would be a light to them also. See, God's plan was not only that the Messiah would save Israel, but Gentiles. Look back in Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 5. 
Thus says the Lord God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring the prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah 52.10. Let me read this for you. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations to the end that all the earth may see the salvation of our God. Jesus is a light of revelation concerning salvation to all the nations. What about Acts chapter 13? Turn to Acts chapter 13. The Jews didn't like this. They wanted it, their, their Jesus to be about them and to fix their problems. Acts chapter 13, verse 44. Acts 13, 44. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. That's pretty great. That doesn't happen these days, does it? But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles. He's quoting that. That you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying God, or glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. Jesus Christ is the light of revelation to the Gentiles concerning salvation. He's a light to everyone. And Simeon understood that, inspired by the Spirit. But also Simeon says that he is, back in our passage, end of 32, the glory of thy people Israel. You see, God had made a covenant with Israel. He was their glory. And yet, as we know, through their disobedience, that his glory departed. Ezekiel, through their disobedience, uh, his, his presence, in a sense, left, and he, his glory departed. A symbolic manifestation of his presence departed. But here we see his glory returned in bodily form. Guess what? The glory of God returned to Israel, and he was in their midst. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten full of, from the Father, full of grace and truth. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory, everything that God had intended for Israel would point to Jesus Christ, the glory of Israel. And it's all concerning this little baby who would grow up, live the perfect life, be delivered by the hands of godless men to a cross, who would die for our sins and rise from the dead. Jesus is the Savior of the world, the complete focus of the glorious gospel. 
One other passage, 2 Corinthians. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. And the Apostle Paul, throughout, one thing that helps you understand First and Second Corinthians is Paul is dealing with a group of people who have been spoiled or, or poisoned by false teachers. They've been poisoned by their own pride, 1 Corinthians, and their own flesh, poisoned by false teachers, 2 Corinthians. And God, through his word, is trying to, as we see and does, win them back in a sense. But he has to point out their sinfulness first. And so within that, the Apostle Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, because the, the accusations were, hey, Paul, nobody's getting saved through your ministry. Not many people getting saved. And he says, well, even if it's veiled, if our gospel is veiled, notice what he says, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. When you voluntarily disbelieve the truth that Jesus says and commands you to believe, God allows Satan to blind your minds. And you're on your way to eternal destruction. That they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ who is in the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts uh, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. Just as light shone out of darkness in the original creation, let there be light. God brought forth his Son, and light shone throughout darkness. And so we have the tremendous light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. God who took on human flesh, lived the perfect life, died for our sins. And he has shown that truth in your hearts. But if you disbelieve, your heart will be hardened. Don't reject it. This little babe, since Simeon was holding in his hands, was the savior of the world. And God has placed it before all of us to see. You're seeing it today through his inspired word by his spirit. You can't deny it. Unless you blaspheme the spirit of God, you speak evil against it. Look at Psalm 98. Psalm 98, verses 2 and 3. Psalm 98, verse 2. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of what? The nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And that comes in the person of Jesus Christ. There are some of you here today that may still be in prison. You're a prisoner to your sin. You dwell in darkness, you are blind to your eternal destiny, yet it is through Jesus that our eyes are opened to our sinful condition and our need for him to save us. That's what Christmas is about. God who took on human flesh to save. And so then we have this tremendous declaration of blessing God. Simeon declares God's glorious truth concerning this babe, only 40 days old, who is the savior of the world. So how do Mary and Joseph respond? Back to our passage. This is kind of interesting. 
Verse 33. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Very interesting. Because remember, Joseph had been told just a few months before that Mary, the child that was conceived in her, was of the Holy Spirit, right? Remember the angel came to him? That's supernatural in a dream, right? He'd been told that you should name him Jesus, which he will, because he will save his people from their sins. He's like, this is the Messiah, right? Matthew 1. Mary, a virgin, had been told that that which would be conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and that he would be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord would give him the throne of his father David, and the holy offspring for that reason shall be called the Son of God. And she had been told that she would be blessed among women and blessed by, by the fruit of her womb. After Jesus had been born uh, six weeks earlier, Mary and Joseph had been told by the shepherds concerning the Savior, all that the angel had said concerning the child. And now 40 days later, they're receiving more revelation through Simeon, and they're amazed. They're amazed. His father and mother were amazed at the things which are being said about him. Not only is Jesus the Messiah and Savior for the Jews, he's the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the world, Gentiles too. This little babe that Simeon was holding. Well, how about you? Are you amazed at what God did? taking on human flesh, this little babe? Do you marvel that God would become a man? He'd become just like us, yet without sin. Do you marvel? That's what Christmas should cause us to do. Marvel at what God did for us. So Simeon has been speaking well and blessing God, declaring truth. But notice, um, he responds to seeing Jesus by blessing Mary and Joseph directly here now at this point. He's been blessing God, sharing truth about the baby. Now he blesses Mary and Joseph. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them, that's Mary and Joseph, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So it says, Simeon blessed them, that's Mary and Joseph, Mary, uh, his birth mother, Joseph, his legal father. And we see here some very interesting things, because in the book of Luke, up to this point, we have only had good news. It's been good news of great joy, but there's some bad news. Many will fall in Israel. We have opposition and a sword. Let's begin to unravel this. Notice he says this Christ child is appointed for two things. One, appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and two, for a sign to be opposed. He's been appointed or literally laid forth. Speaks of being placed. He's been put in this position for all to see. He's been appointed for the fall and rise in many of Israel. What's he talking about here? The reality is, in contrast to the Gentiles whom the Messiah would save, Israel would be divided. And many will rise or fall because of Jesus. And I believe he's speaking specifically of the Israelites who would fall into judgment 
or rise into salvation because of this babe, the Savior, the Savior. You're either going to stumble over Jesus to your destruction and fall, or you're going to be saved by him. There's no other option. There's no other option. He is the only Savior. He's the only Savior. Isaiah chapter 8. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and you shall, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall be a sanctuary, both to the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them, and they will fall and be broken. They will be even be snared and caught. It's talking about Israel's response to Messiah at this point, I believe. In contrast to the Gentiles, Israel would trip over and stumble over him. They would say, crucify him. The fall of many. But yet this can be expanded later on. We see Peter making this clear that it applies to Gentiles also. First Peter chapter 2, For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But to those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. You see, there's good news about Jesus, but your response lends itself to either great news or very bad news. You see, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will not be disappointed. If you reject him, you will stumble over him to your eternal doom to which you were appointed so not only will there be the rise and fall, but notice he's also a sign to be opposed. Second thing, a sign specifically to be opposed. Something, a sign is something that you see that represents something. A sign to be opposed. And Jesus himself represents the reality of God's love and grace and kindness and salvation. But he was opposed. The term opposed here is, comes from the Greek word anti-lego. It means to speak against, to be contradicted, to be opposed, characterized by opposition or rejection. The babe who would come to Israel would be a sign that was characterized by opposition. John 1.11, he came to his own, those who were his own did not receive him. All right? As we finish up, listen to this parable when we think about a sign to be opposed. Turn to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verse 33. The Lord Jesus says, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a well around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented, out a vine, rented, out, rented it to vine growers and went out on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another, and they stoned a third. He again sent a group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out 
of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with these vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you not, do you not, did you not ever read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from our Lord, and it is marvelous in his eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And to whom this stone falls, and and he who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. But whomever it falls, it will scatter like dust. The reality is, Jesus' earthly ministry was opposed by opposition. It was a, he was opposed. There were those who opposed him. Ultimately, the same ones who took him and said, crucify him. He was assigned to be opposed. You see, no one's neutral. They may sound like they are. You are either for Christ or you are against him. You either receive forgiveness of sins or you will die in your sins and pay the penalty. So this babe in Simeon's hand was placed for the rise and fall of many in Israel and a sign to be opposed, and he was opposed. But notice, he also reveals that this terrible reality will pierce Mary's soul. Let's finish up. Back in our passage, verse 35, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. It's really a parenthetical statement here, kind of, interjected in the middle of the last thought that he's sharing. He interjects it before he finishes his blessing. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. The opposition to Jesus will be a sword that pierces even Mary's own soul. The term sword here is not a short two-edged sword. It's a large broad sword. Now, we don't know for certain, but I think it's speaking of the grief that Mary would experience concerning those who oppose Jesus and crucify him, it would pierce her own soul. Mary, it's going to pierce your soul. You're going to experience deep sorrow because of the opposition that this babe will face. You know, on a side note, brothers and sisters, we won't go through anything like Mary went through because, but because Jesus is opposed, we will suffer opposition. The reality is it's been granted to us for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. First, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, right? We see that in Matthew chapter 5. So Mary's going to experience the very same thing. You see, if the world hates you, Jesus said, know that it hated me before it hated you. So Simeon is revealing these truths inspired by the Spirit concerning Jesus who would be a sign to be opposed. Do you oppose him? Do you oppose him? But not only would he be opposed, that opposition would strike home to Mary. And then notice our passage. You could actually translate it probably this way. And Simeon blessed them, verse 34, and said to his mother Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Then then there's the parenthetical statement that we just looked at, but then it continues, to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. 
One version says it this way. Indeed, as a result of him, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then to Mary, and a sword will pierce even your own soul as well, Mary. What I believe is saying here is that your response to Jesus, God who took on human flesh and died for your sins, will indicate where your heart is at. It's going to expose your heart. Your response to Jesus exposes your heart. You can't be passive about him after hearing the truth concerning him. If you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, uh, your thoughts of your heart have been exposed today. Today. Some of your hearts have been exposed. What is your response? Have you seen his salvation? Has he enlightened you concerning your sin and your need of him? If so, what's your response? He's been placed before you through the word of God. What is your response? Oh, brothers and sisters, for us, our response should be praising God and giving him glory. Because God took on human flesh and died for our sins. He came for us. We should be praising him because our eyes have seen our salvation in the person of Christ in the word of God. He's a light of revelation concerning salvation. If you believe in him, you'll be delivered from your sins and you'll be saved. So brothers and sisters, do we marvel? Or has Christmas become just one more kind of year of the same stuff? Do we marvel at what God has declared concerning his son, Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for Simeon uh, and his example, a sinner saved by your grace, awaiting to see your salvation. Thank you, Lord God, that we have seen it too, that we have seen your salvation revealed in your word. I pray for anyone here who is currently on their way to eternally falling, that they would not stumble over Christ, but that they would turn in humility and be saved, Lord, that they might obey your call to be saved and believe in him. Then for those of us who know you, Lord God, may we absolutely praise you and thank you for what you've done in your son Jesus. May we continue to be amazed and, and give you the glory and honor due your name for what you have done in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray.